From the Northern Confluence Initiative, this is 54 Degrees North. Northern Confluence is dedicated to conserving the salmon watersheds that sustain our communities, economies, and shared futures. It is pretty inspiring to think about, you know, you're in the estuary down near Rupert and you're standing there and you're connected. You're connected all the way upstream, all the way to the Kispiox, all the way to the Babine, by the flows of water, by the migrations of fish. The Skeena River is the second largest salmon-producing watershed in Canada, and the Skeena River estuary, an irreplaceable nursery for these salmon. Hundreds of millions of juvenile salmon from populations throughout the watershed feed, adapt to the marine environment, and evade predators in the eelgrass habitat of Flora Bank and surrounding nearshore region. When the estuary was being threatened by a major LNG proposal, the nine allied tribes of the Lachalams declared that Lilu Island, Flora and Agnew Banks are hereby protected for all time as a refuge for wild salmon and marine resources and are to be held in trust for all future generations. I'm Nikki Skuse and the host of this podcast, 54 Degrees North. As part of a series exploring salmon connections and resilience, we caught up with Johan and Dr. Jonathan Moore to learn about the Skeena Estuary and its significance. Hi, I'm Donald Wesley. I'm a hereditary chief from Lakwalams of the Simshian descent. I belong to the Gispadwada tribe of the Gitwalgyats. What's the importance of Lilu Island and Flora Banks there in terms of the, the entire Skeena estuary or many of those coastal salmon? Well, the mouth of the Skeena River, it hosts two banks, Agnew and Flora Bank, and researched by the Department of Fisheries back in the 70s, and just recently in 2013-14, Jonathan Moore and Patrick McLaren gave significant evidence on scientific uh, data that was gathered over a two-year period that what would happen if Flora Banks were taken away. You know, the eelgrass supports... At any given year, 300 to 400,000 salmon that come out of the Skeena. And as the data showed that as far as uh, rivers in it, there was a nursery for all salmon throughout the region. So it's, it's an important part of the puzzle. Right. Yeah. And it was threatened yeah. by the Petronas LNG yeah. facility and... What uh, what what was what was your response when when that proposal came through? Well, when oil and gas and big industry came to our people, there you know, like everybody was really in the dark about uh, who what this was. We we didn't have any idea what LNG was or liquefied gas or anything like that, you know. And it was overwhelming that you know you had a 
government uh, backed by everybody in Canada, you know, that wanted this particular plant to go there. And, you know, they came there with uh, money and promises and all good stuff, you know, and paint the roads gold. And, yeah, no, it, it was a bad thing right from the get-go, you know. Like, they started off with um, bold-faced lies to our people. So, you know, after a few weeks and months of hearing all the reports and meetings and meeting with industry, you know, it, it started adding up very quickly of what, what we were dealing with here. Bad people. Yeah. 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 And how, and, and you occupied Lilo Island for a little while. Yeah, we went down, my family went down there a few days before drill boats were to come onto the island and made our presence there and we let uh, three levels of government know that my myself as the a title holder to the land and the island that I was going to take back the island, you know, for protection of Flora Banks. Um, it was a thing that, you know, was not taken lightly because, you know, a lot of people were going to be taking stabs at you from there because a lot of money was involved, so that's how it went. Yeah, you know, like I've always said, that the salmon was there. That's what we had to protect first and foremost, you know, like it's not ours. It was given to us, you know, it's it's sustained our life economically, you know. It nourished my nation for thousands of years. But at the bottom line, it was survival for my people and survival for humanity as a, as a whole. If, so many rivers have disappeared on the coast here now, you know, and it's our back door. We couldn't let this happen, you know, like the sun is shining today and I'm talking, you know, it's a good day. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Okay, great. After seeing Johan at a Wet'suwet'en gathering, we connected with Dr. Jonathan Moore on Zoom. Morning. Yeah, my name is Jonathan Moore. I'm at SFU, Simon Fraser University. One of the places you have done research is in the in the Skeena River and the estuary. And I'm just, um, you know, it's, as you know, it's critical, critically important uh, for salmon and the cultures and communities that rely on them around here. Um, and I'm just wondering if, if what are what are some of the features of the Skeena estuary that makes it such important and productive habitat? Yeah, the Skeena estuary is amazing. It's um you know, it's obviously right where the river meets the sea. But, you know, stepping back and thinking about it, that's pretty amazing. It's right where, you know, this watershed that's the size of Switzerland that has all these different tributaries, all these different salmon populations, it all sort of funnels down into this one place. And then it, you know, mixes up with the Pacific Ocean, the biggest ecosystem in the world. And so you have this amazing sort of meeting points of ecosystem of ecosystems of rivers and oceans right there and so in the Skeena estuary in particular um you know there's all these amazing small islands that create the sort of semi-enclosed habitat there's a lot of different habitat features eel grass beaches lots of different sort of complexity and um and i think that's that complexity and the fact that it's always changing, the tides are always coming in or going out and the river flows are changing. That's what really drives a system like the Skeena, all these connections, whether it's nutrients from the river or from the ocean, whether it's 
uh, young salmon migrating through the estuary or, you know, estuary fish using the habitat as well. It's this amazing sort of hub for life. Um, and it, it is pretty inspiring to think about, you know, you're in the estuary down near Rupert and you're standing there and you're connected. You're connected all the way upstream, all the way to the Kispiox, all the way to the Babine by the flows of water, by the migrations of fish. Yeah, pretty amazing. And also, you, you did mention tides, like the tides up there are quite dramatic too, aren't they? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, here in one habitat, and then six hours later, it might be under three meters of water. <laughs> it, <laughs> it changes very fast. And, you know, the water can move fast. And so it's pushing, pushing things around. It's, it's, you know, adding, it's, it's really sort of driving constant change. Yeah, and we I think we say that like about ninety percent of the Skeena salmon just spend some time there at some point. Going, I don't know if that's accurate. I don't know. The... Well, yeah, I mean, I think you know all Skeena salmon need to head through there, and right. so um, I think you know in a given year that could be millions of fish, or it could be you know five hundred million of fish following a big pink salmon year. And so that's a lot of fish from a lot of different places that are swimming through there. And some of our research found that, yeah, you know, it seems like many different populations and individuals reside there and grow there for an extended period of time. Right. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like what some of your past collaborative research projects were in the Skeena estuary? Yeah, I feel super thankful and fortunate to have gotten a chance to work in the estuary. And that work was... Um, took place over five years actually so it was a long long collaborative and it was in partnership with Skeena Fisheries Commission and La Columbus Fisheries and so over time um, the team spent a ton of time out on the water and the boats and um, you know setting nets trying to understand where young fish were using different habitats um, you know the different environmental conditions that might be influencing that so there's a series of projects that we did um, but all trying to sort of unpack and um, add understanding to this really important ecosystem. And again, it was a really amazing collaboration. I really um, admire and appreciate the expertise and leadership and hard work of the Lachalam's team and Skinny Fisheries team and also the folks in my research group that were part of this. Nice. Um, you know, oftentimes science that you've done has informed decisions and our policies or, or helped you know, indigenous nations or others sort of make decisions. And and I imagine other times it hasn't when you wish it did. <laughs> but, mm. uh, you know, I, how important is it to you that your research is applied and considered in the in, in development or policy decisions that impact salmon or salmon habitat? Yeah, I mean, personally, I, I love learning and I love how science can, you know, shine a light on something that we might not know about. But my real motivation is for that science to make a difference. And um, I think that knowledge that's gained through science or other ways of knowing, you know, can really help make decisions better. And I think that, um, you know, by understanding how these systems work, we can understand, for example, the true sort of full suite of risks or benefits offered by one sort of path or not. And I think it can also highlight things that we don't know, things that 
okay, this is something that we just don't know. And this is a risk of the unknown. Mm. And the flip side of that is that I think, you know, if we don't pay attention to science, if it sort of gets brushed to the side, then I think there's real risks. And I think that, you know, a decision could be made that poses actual harm and, and hurts these ecosystems that we really rely on and hurts salmon that, you know, sustain fisheries and sustain cultures. And, and so I think the, the harm that can be caused by not incorporating science is real. And, and so that's a deeply motivating, I, I think, um, I think there's a real opportunity for work that's sort of done in a place that's sort of informed by local priorities and the knowledge of local experts can can be helpful in some cases. And um, yeah, so I think it's really important that research, especially these days, especially in this time when there are a lot of environmental challenges and where there are a lot of hard decisions that need to get made um, for science to try to be applied. Can you just talk a little bit about, you know, how uh salmon habitat uh you know quantity and quality is changing in particular around bc's northwest i know whether in the skeena and or you said you just came back from tacky river tlingit territory yeah so um salmon ecosystems are changing rapidly and so this is an era of rapid change and some of those changes are being caused by land use uh, by people and so whether it's forestry or development or restoration, all those can affect the amount and the um, the quality of salmon habitat. And then also climate change. Climate change is happening, it's here, it's, it's happening fast. And those two processes in tandem, climate change and watershed land use are really driving rapid change. And it's, that change is complicated in some places, you know, in some years, uh, waters might be too warm. And that warming water is probably because it's a hot summer caused by in part climate change. And then maybe also because of logging that, uh, you know, might not shade the streams as much. And, and so the combined impacts of climate change and human land use in some cases are posing harm to salmon. And in some places, we're getting to the point, even in the north, where it's like, whoa, okay, this is um, this isn't far away. <laughs> mm. You know, things are getting beyond what salmon can handle in some some locations that are susceptible naturally. And then other places, um, you know, at least in the you know next decades, it seems like climate change might be increasing. Uh, you know, the quality of salmon habitat, or in some cases, actually the quantity of salmon habitat a little bit farther north. And so some of our research has mapped out where and when glacier retreat will uncover new salmon habitat. And so as glaciers are retreating, they march up these river valleys. And in some cases, they'll leave behind new lakes or new rivers. And work from elsewhere is finding that salmon find those habitats and they can thrive. And so in a river that might not have existed a couple decades ago, but now does because of glacier retreat, there might be tens of thousands of salmon. And so what we have is a sort of complex mosaic of change. In some places, um, you know, the quantity and quality is decreasing due to these combined impacts. And in some places, it might actually be increasing. And this change represents, of course, a challenge and opportunity. You know, how do we 
you know, take control of the decisions that could actually increase the resilience of these systems? How do we take control of the systems that might be getting pushed into harm by cumulative effects? Or how do we steward these sort of salmon futures that actually might be um, fostered in the forthcoming decades by climate change? Yeah, and I guess on that, like what, um, I mean, you talk about how, how to take control, but what, what are some of the strategies or mitigation efforts that you think are needed to ensure the resilience and adaptation of salmon? Yeah, that's a great question and a really important one. I think the first thing that needs to be done is that land use decisions should be made in a climate change context. I think we should be thinking about, you know, we can't just ask ourselves, should we log here or should we build this road here in isolation from climate change? We need to have that climate change hat on. We need to be asking ourselves, okay, is this logging needed or is it important? enough to justify, given the fact that it's going to push this system farther into a place where it's more and more vulnerable to climate change. So I think that's one really key key need is, is having that climate change hat on when we're thinking about uh, land use management. I think another key need is that in these ecosystems that are being transformed, ecosystems where ice is changing to water, or where sea level rise is happening and estuaries are, you know, migrating upslope um, with ocean rise. You know, how do we sort of steward those future habitats? We can't just mm -hmm. protect current salmon habitat. We need to be looking to the future and we need to be thinking about, okay, let's take a forward-looking perspective on this and let's ask ourselves, how can we steward the habitats of the future and not just the habitats of today? You you reference you talk a lot about um systems i think mm. like the important of it i don't um you know do you f find too sometimes that that maybe things are simplified too much and in particular i guess in looking at um maybe like a mining project per se without you know that yeah. com complexity of of the ecosystem I think that's a great point. Uh, salmon ecosystems are incredibly complex and dynamic ecosystems. You know, rivers flood and they create new habitat and, you know, other habitat is lost in a given year. You know, salmon migrate. They, you know, studies repeatedly found they don't use the same habitat time and time again. They use different patches of habitat that's created and destroyed. And, um, you know, different years are going to be different. In a hot year, they're probably going to rely more on cold water habitats and in a cold year when they might be actually seeking out the warmer habitats. And, and these processes unfold over space and time. And so habitat is created by movement of sediment from upstream, by movement of wood from upstream. And, and the idea, and, and so we have this sort of, you know, constantly changing habitat. We have this constantly changing ecosystem, a really complex system. And that complex system is changing, but that change creates resilience. It means that even as it's changing, it's kind of staying the same. There might not be a net change in habitat over time because there's a sort of constant creation or destruction or, you know, ebb and flow. And I think it is uh, hard for people to wrap our heads around that complexity and the mm. scales of connection. I think it's hard. I think, you know, we might want to be able to predict things perfectly. And the fact is you can't 
you know, sometimes you just can't predict what habitat salmon are going to use next year because we don't know how the sort of different factors are going to interplay. And, and what that means, though, is that it's, it's hard to engineer our solutions out of these problems because they're really complex systems and we're trying to have these simple fixes. Yeah. And, you know, I think um, that shouldn't be uh, motivation for inaction, but what it should be is a justification for really appreciating the value and the benefits of intact systems mm. and intact functioning systems. Yeah. And I guess that's one of the lessons that I've learned over my you know, career, not to get all um, reflective, but, um, <laughs> you know, I, I've worked in California and I've worked, you know, down in the States where there is this huge legacy of human impacts. And I see, you know, scientists and um, restoration pe- uh, restoration experts trying to, you know, fix these systems. And it's really hard. And it sometimes doesn't work. And it takes enormous investments in money and continued investments in money. And, you know, I see places like the Skeena and the Taku and there, you know, they have their challenges, but they have a lot of amazing, protected, thriving ecosystems. And when I say a thriving ecosystem, I don't just mean the salmon. I don't just yeah. mean the rivers, but I also mean people, you know, people who are, you know, living there, taking care of it and, and sort of deeply intertwined with the health of the system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are, um, just just to, as, as we go to wrap up, what are, what are some of the projects you and your students are working on right now? Mm. One of the projects I'm really excited about is thinking about estuary resilience given sea level rise. And so we're collaborating with BC Nature Trust, working on um, about a dozen estuaries on Vancouver Islands and then up coast just a little bit and thinking about sea level rise and then thinking about what do we do about it? And so estuaries provide really critical nursery function for young salmon. as well as many other species. I'm, I'm a salmon squeezer, but yeah. lots of things rely <laughs> on salmon. Um, and sea level rise is, you know, starting to happen. And it's projected that by the next century, it'll be, you know, about half a meter to a meter higher, depending on the emissions. And that's a big change in these sort of low-lying areas. Yeah. And so what we're hoping is that this type of information can guide restoration and mitigation efforts such that you know maybe a culvert can get replaced or a dike can get removed such that the estuary can migrate can be resilient to climate change and can um i think you know there's there's going to be loss but i think there's also a lot we can do to increase the resilience of these systems to these oncoming transformations like that awesome what is a what's something that you learned from your students Mm. Uh, so much. That's a. <laughs> that's a <laughs> I'm sorry, sure it the students. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think uh, I've, I'm super thankful to get a chance to work with so many amazing people, and they have incredible skills and expertise that you know they do things I don't know how to do. Um, and also, you know, each person brings their own perspective and worldview and. And I just love just trying to under trying to get a chance to work with people who see the world, you know, differently, and just watch their growth and see how 
um, you know, they get inspired by working with people and working outside in beautiful places. So I don't know. Inspiration, I mm-hmm. guess, is a key thing. And then, yeah, just there's straight up smart. And uh, that's, that's wonderful. <laughs> um, and what's a part of your research or job that, that nobody sees or, or some little fact that you know that, you know, that you'd want to tell people about? Mm. Well, some of the job is quite, you know, being a professor is really amazing. And it's fun. And some of it's not very exciting. <laughs> a lot of it's, you know, on the computer, dealing with emails and, you know, administration. So that's a part that people don't see that, you know, people don't need to see. It's it's fine. <laughs> it needs to happen. I guess the thing that I'll say is that I, I find um, personally, I learn the most when I'm not, you know, reading a textbook, when I'm not reading a paper, but when I'm outside in a place listening to the land or listening to people that live there. And I find that that's where a lot of uh, the inspiration comes from and ideas come from is just, you know, being in these places and learning from them and the people that live there. Awesome. Thanks, John. I totally appreciate this. Is there anything else that you want to add? No, thank you, Nikki. This has been a lot of fun. And um, yeah, I appreciate the conversation. Skeena River is the second largest salmon producing watershed in Canada, and a critical part of it is the unique and highly productive estuary. This area deserves protection from future threats, and it is so essential to the survival and resilience of salmon and cultures in this region. Thank you so much for listening to this 54 Degrees North podcast, Salmon Connections and Resilience Series. This episode was recorded on the unceded territory of the Wet'suwet'en in the months of July and August 2022. Thank you so much to Yahan, Don Wesley, and Jonathan Moore for interviews, insights, and for your contributions to strengthening our salmon systems. Thank you to Los Gringos Salvajes for the music. Thank you to Facundo Gastiazoro for the art. This podcast is produced by Nikki Skuse with production and editing assistance by Namita Prakash. Thanks to the Canada Summer Jobs Program for helping make this podcast possible. The 54 Degrees North podcast is available for download on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.